Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn, and today I'm going to tell you the story of lilac perfume, some very dark and dank places, and about the time I creeped the hell out of the staff of a pizzeria. Hello, my goblins and ghouls. How are you? How is your day going? I hope it is going wonderfully. I have missed you all so freaking much. It's not even funny. I don't know about y'all, but this year has started out incredibly, completely crazy for me. Me and the husband got stuck in that whole Southwest Airlines meltdown and spent the Christmas season in New York, which was really funny because we went out to go visit my little brother and he was actually able to catch his United flight back to Colorado to spend Christmas with the family. So we're in his apartment in New York and he's out here with everybody. So it was kind of... Rather amusing. And then almost as soon as we got back, my husband went down with COVID. So, yeah, that sucked. And then I got it this time. I had to cancel my oddity shows in Anaheim and San Diego. So I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do for our fall season now. But I'll figure it out. Speaking of seasons, I'm doing seasons now for the podcast. I love the podcast with all my heart. I love doing it. I love the research. You guys know I'm a big research nerd. I I really honestly enjoy doing it. But I unfortunately just cannot keep up with it and bring you guys the quality I would like if I tried to knock one out every week. I don't know how people do that and have like full-time jobs. I, I'm not that person apparently. And remember, I'm, I'm the only one here. So I'm doing everything, research, writing, recording, editing. We know I'm not the best at it as it is, but it's, it's a lot. So I've decided to try something new. I'm going to be doing a spring season and a fall spooky season. Most of the podcasts are going to be about places that I visit on my travels. I like to do that anyways. It's more fun. You guys seem to like those episodes the best. I'm hoping to get more ghost hunting in at these places as well. So, you know, so far I'm really enjoying it. Um, Literally all I did while I had COVID was work on the podcast. It was kind of nice, actually. Not the COVID part, but just being able to only focus on the podcast was A nice little break. This spring season, I'm going to be doing all the places I visited 
visited on my trip to the Pacific Northwest. I got stories from Portland, Astoria, and Seattle coming up for you guys. I'm kind of obsessed with spending parts of my fall out there with the Oddities and Curiosities Expo. Shout out to them. Very much missing them right now. (laughs) A really cool thing, real quick, that happened while in Portland at the expo, I was talking to this lovely mother-child duo about the custom poppets I make. And the mother asked me if we had ever met before. And I told her I didn't think so, considering I've never been out there, except for the year before, and I was basically only at the show. She wasn't sure, but there was something about me that she was convinced we had met or crossed paths, something, something along those lines. We weren't sure, but we weren't too worried about it. When she was checking out, she noticed one of the podcast cards I have on the table. Because I always have my little podcast cards for advertising. And she asked the hopes, who was the checkout person at the time, if we knew the person who did the podcast. My hopes immediately was like, yeah, it's my wife. And Jen gestured towards me while I was helping other couples customers at the time she got really excited because apparently she randomly came across the podcast and has been listening for a bit she had recognized my voice when we were talking which is hilarious so yeah she did technically know me so that's kind of cool so celeste and sage if you are listening hi and this one is dedicated to you. And it's a long one, you guys. <laughs> On this week's episode, we are going dark, 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 and discussing one of the heavy hitters in the paranormal community, the infamous Shanghai Tunnels of Portland. Trigger warning. When I say it's dark, it's real dark. Name a bad thing, And it will probably be mentioned today. Human trafficking, sexual assault, drugging, murder, cannibalism, racism. Yeah, there's a lot today. A lot. (laughs) I discovered in my travels in the PWN that there are actually quote-unquote Shanghai tunnels in Portland, Astoria, and Seattle. All of them have these underground tunnels. I thought that was fascinating. But the Portland ones are probably the most famous amongst paranormal enthusiasts because they have been seen on every ghost show basically ever in existence. There is a lot of history to get through. A lot. Don't worry though. I know you're here for some darkness The history is very dark and very gruesome. Last year, if you guys remember, I couldn't go to the tunnels. Everything had been shut down and hadn't been reopened since COVID, and I was devastated. So this year, I guess last year technically, 
I made damn sure to go. And I'll probably go again this year when I'm out for the Oddities and Curiosities Expo again. I even have a ghostly experience that I get to tell you guys all about at the end. I'm so excited. So let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea. Maybe something with roses. It's Portland after all. Make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. Portland has become one of my favorite places to be in the fall. It's just gorgeous. It's so wet and humid, so it's green. Like, everything is still green. I am from Colorado, so come late October, if we don't have snow on the ground, everything is just dead and brown. So, getting to go out and visit Apparently, a rainforest paradise is just wonderful. Portland is known as the City of Roses. And this was really a popular name during the Victorian era. But literally, there's still roses everywhere. Like, the unofficial logo for the town is roses. Like, there are roses literally growing out of storm drains there. It's amazing. It's weird that this lovely lush background has some really horrific stories to tell. And to start, we have some history to go over. And we have a lot of history to go over. So if you're one of those that like to skip to the, uh, ghost stories you have a ways to skip but you're gonna really miss some really macabre history the area that is now portland oregon it was inhabited by the chinook tribe they were foragers and fishermen these people were first encountered by the lewis and clark expedition in 1805 an interesting side note The Chinookian, that's hard to say, people practice flat boarding or head flattening. This was a relatively common practice in the Americas. It was a mark of status among the Chinook people who lived on both sides of the Columbia River from its mouth to the Dales. I'm not 100% sure where that is. The process began at birth and continued for another 8 to 12 months until the child's forehead was permanently reshaped. While perhaps appearing painful, apparently it caused no harm, which I find very interesting. Although the custom had faded away by the end of the 19th century, People with flattened heads could still be found in Oregon as late as the 1950s. Alice Slim Jim Charlie, a resident of Salo, 
village in the 1950s was thought to have been the last living Columbia River Indian with a flattened head. I thought that was interesting. The Oregon Trail soon brought settlers to the area and the Chinook were pushed into a smaller region. The massive amounts of trees and very large trees as that made Portland the perfect lumber town and that industry thrived there. I think it still is, to be perfectly honest. Hence, the other Portland nickname, Stumptown. It also had close proximity to the Columbia River and the Willamette River, which also made it a shipping hub that moved so many goods through it, it wasn't even funny. Settlers just flocked in from the East Coast, thanks to all of that manifest destiny propaganda, the promise of work, owning your own land, and, of course, the California Gold Rush. Another historical side note. I found this little tidbit, but I didn't get a chance to really research it. So, the story goes, Portland came up came by its name in a very unique way. It came down to the flip of a penny. Two men, Maine merchant Francis Pettigrove and Massachusetts lawyer Asa Lovejoy, flipped a penny to decide if the town would be called Portland or Boston after their respective hometowns. Well, Francis won, and Portland was incorporated in 1851. Portland was a boom town, with the amount of people and the things that came along with people, like traffic and later a streetcar system, moving goods from the ports to their destinations in town became difficult. (laughs) Plus, like I said... Portland is technically a rainforest. There was a lot of rain, which means mud. So it just became a big, giant mess. Somebody had the brilliant idea of building tunnels under the city streets to help alleviate the problem. Within a few years, several tunnels had been built, creating an expansive maze of tunnels lined with brick and shored up with heavy beams. Which, if you get to go visit sometime, it's mostly just like the basements of buildings that are connected. But I'm assuming there's some like in the streets and everything. It is believed that the tunnel system became so extensive that it linked many waterfront warehouses and docks with buildings as far west as Northwest 19th near Northwest Davis Street. Don't worry, I'll get a map. Research has found that there were major tunnels that stretched from the current intersection of West Burnside Street to Northwest 19th Street to Bunco Docks, Wooden Nickel Docks, Turks Hotel for Sailors, I love that name, Boss Wharf, and Greenhorn Dock. These tunnels started to expand 
even more. Like if someone owned multiple buildings, he would also build tunnels between his businesses. And then they started expanding to more than just the movement of goods. Considering that the Shanghai tunnels were out of view of the general public, they also became connected to hotels, bars, brothels, and opium dens, giving the people the ability to sneak around to these places, which also means that the conditions of the tunnels pretty quickly deteriorated. Human trafficking, or shanghaiing, as we're going to talk about, became a huge issue, and still is. And because of this, Portland became considered one of the most dangerous ports in the world and earned the moniker the Forbidden City of the West. Now, the Shanghai Tunnels weren't referred to as the Shanghai Tunnels until later, when the practice of Shanghai became commonplace. Now, it is possible that the name Shanghai Tunnels later, even like a hundred years later, became attributed to the tunnels. Because it sounds interesting. Let's be honest here. But I'm not a hundred percent sure when they first started to be reading to as the Shanghai Tunnels. A lot of times they are referred to simply as the Portland Underground. And I kind of found that in a few different papers and everything. Anyways, Shanghaiing refers to the capture and sale of able-bodied men to ship captains in need of extra crew. I have heard two different origins for the term Shanghaiing. The first one is a lot of the men who were kidnapped were placed on ships en route to Shanghai, China. Or the second one is that this practice was rampant in the Far East and was given the moniker Shanghai for the city in which it started. I have seen people get very adamant about the origin they think it is. So there's both for you. Also, another term for shanghaiing is crimping, and they could use be used interchangeably. A lot of men doing the shanghaiing were known as crimps or crimpers. Your initial reaction might be, that can't be legal, and how did they get away with that? Well, let's talk about it. Maritime law is very complex, so for our purposes, I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible. In those days, sailors weren't allowed to leave their ships for other jobs until their ship reached the final port. Like, it was an arrestable offense if you jumped ship early. Ships needed a certain amount of men to sail, and even if one man abandons his post, everything comes to a halt. So, they were really important. But life on a ship was hard, so a lot of sailors disappeared as soon as they reached their final destination to find work 
basically anywhere else. This became a huge problem for captains since about three-fifths of all sailors who arrived in Astoria or Portland ditched their ships and didn't come back. One of the big reasons is a lot of the guys had taken off for the California gold rush. The captains needed to find a way to have a steady stream of men available to them. This gave rise to the crimps. If a ship needed to find more men, the captain sent for a crimp who um, supplied, quote unquote, able-bodied men for up to 30 to $50 a head. I've, I've seen both. I've seen 30 and I've seen up to 50. So somewhere in there. So where were the crimps finding these able-bodied men? And it's always referred to as able-bodied men. So if you hear me use that phrase over and over again, I swear I read it over and over again. Initially, the crimps would befriend a lonely sailor in a bar and offered to buy drinks. Their stories of captains themselves going into the bars and keeping an eye out for a guy to add to the crew. He would mark the poor unknown man by going up and tapping his shoulder. That was a signal to the crimpers that that was the one the captain chose. With the collusion of the bartender, the drink was laced with a barbiturate or some other sedative that quickly rendered the victim nearly unconscious. Or they would be kidnapped while the guy was already intoxicated, or they would just knock them unconscious. <laughs> The unfortunate man was then positioned over a trapdoor called a deadfall and dropped into a basement where other crimpers would be waiting for him. Once in the tunnels, captives were locked in any number of cramped cells. Escaping was nearly impossible. These men didn't know how to navigate the dark tunnels. First of all, they can't see in the dark. They also would take the men's shoes away from them and then scatter broken glass all over the tunnels so the men couldn't escape. I guess if they did, they would just, the crimpers would be able just to follow the trail of blood to them and usually find them again. It is said that many men died there of exposure, starvation, drug overdose, or other injuries. Those that survived would then be transported to a ship when a captain needed another body. Depending on circumstances, some of the men never really experienced the tunnels themselves, really. Some were so heavily drugged that they were out of it the entire time or there was a ship on standby waiting for men already so these poor guys were taken to the ship and when they finally came out of their stupor they would be out at sea with no way to escape and 
sometimes they were gone for up to two years. Just imagine being like the family of one of these guys. Your son, brother, father, boyfriend, whatever, just disappears with no sign whatsoever. No word, no nothing. And then randomly appears again. Their stories, it happened. When these guys awoke, they were on a ship out at sea. Sometimes they would find themselves shackled to the bottom of the ship. They were then pressed into service, which means they were met by the captain and forced to sign papers saying how long they would work along aboard the ship. Basically like signing over that they would work the ship however long they needed to for the entire length of the voyage, basically. If they refused, they would be considered stowaways and thrown overboard where they're out in the middle of the sea, the guys would just drown. And it was okay because they were stowaways. It's not a good option. Staying aboard the ship really didn't get any easier. A lot of times these guys were starved and beaten. Rations were low sort of thing. There are stories of cannibalism, which, yes, I go into it, so no need to stop and Google that. There's even stories of men who returned from sea only to be captured again by crimpers and forced to do it all over again. Some historians believe that as many as 1,500 men with some estimates up to 3,000 men were shanghaied each year from 1855 to 1941. Now, the actual extent of Shanghaiing in Portland is really unknowable, but data compiled by Seamen's Protection Protective Organizations, such as the Sailors Union of the Pacific, indicated that it was primarily a problem on ships in trans-Pacific trade and that it was common in West Coast ports on Puget Sound, the Columbia River, and especially San Francisco Bay. So there's a wide swath of this happening. The development of large steam-powered ships that required train crews to operate and that were financed, built, and managed by international corporations hastened the demise of sailing ships, added as did reforms in international maritime law and its enforcement. Steamships also provided better working conditions and more stable employment for seamen, with the result that Shanghaiing had ceased by the end of World War II-ish, right before World War II-ish, somewhere in there. Able-bodied men weren't the only people who ran the risk of being shanghaied. 
women in town were also told to avoid certain areas where women were regularly kidnapped and sent to faraway cities to be sold into forced sex work. Crimps posing as missionaries or police would spot women newly arrived in town and recommend a particular boarding house or hotel. Once checked in, the women would be drugged and transported to underground cells. What was done to these women was just atrocious. These women underwent days or weeks of deprivation and psychological attacks. In Haunted Portland, Oregon by Jeff Dreyer, he writes, in many cases, they were told that they must work in the sex industry or their family would be informed that they had taken up a depraved life in Portland. Seeking to avoid an unbearable reputation, they became easily managed and locked into a sordid life that often ended with a very early death. Now, remember, this is the time when women couldn't even show an ankle without it being scandalous. But it wasn't really all that easy either. These women were also beaten, raped, and drugged into submission. It's pretty akin to the stories of modern-day human trafficking, which is actually exactly what this is. And it's still a huge problem today. One of the things that really took me aback, especially in Seattle, were all the missing posters of young women all all over the place, like everywhere. So let's not forget, it's still an issue today. So how did they get away with this? That is pretty easy, actually. First of all, a lot of the people shanghaied were considered the quote-unquote dregs of society. Poor people, immigrants, indigenous people, the people that police wouldn't have searched for anyways, sadly. Police and officials were also paid off not to look for them as well. So really when these people fell into the clutches of the crimpers, they were basically done for. And one of these crimpers, probably the most infamous, was named Bunko Kelly. All right, here we go. Bunko Kelly, one of the most notorious crimpers out there. Like, uh, this guy, <laughs> he is such a ridiculous figure. I have read articles where people weren't even sure if he actually existed. Like, people, people argue that he's just like this Paul Bunyan, like, 
evil Paul Bunyan-esque character. But he was definitely real. He he existed, and that's, I think, the real thing. But um, he's a very interesting man. A real, real piece of work. So, Bunko Kelly appeared in newspapers for the first time according to Portland historian Barney Ballock in April 1887. A ship's captain wrote to the Oregonian to complain that Kelly has supplied him with a man who was rendered nearly motionless, motionless wow, by rheumatism. Kelly's next mention in 1890, a local paper, described him as the boss Shanghaier in the Northwest. So, you guys know me. I love going through newspaper archives. I personally could not find these papers that this guy is referring to. Not saying they don't exist, I just can't find them. Further documentation of Kelly and proof that he actually existed uh, appears in the official court records. Remember, Shanghai wasn't illegal, so he wasn't in court for Shanghai. Apparently, the crimps like to use the courts against each other. And I just find that very interesting. Um, an example of this is when he took his own brother to court over a $50 debt. And this is in April 1887. Um, but they continued to be in a working partnership together after that. Um, I, I I couldn't find more details on this either, but uh, just imagine that family dynamic. Another story in the Oregonian in 1889 recounts complaints from a Samoan Samoan sailor who said Kelly had locked him in a room when Kelly couldn't find a ship that would readily take him. Another appearance is in 1891, Kelly was arrested for keeping a quote-unquote disorderly house. Now, according to our friend Barney, uh... He says that this could have merely meant an unlicensed saloon, but may have meant that he was running a brothel. I saw the term disorderly house a lot in my research of the tunnels, especially during Prohibition, and uh, it always meant brothel. <laughs> Um, it always meant brothel in all the courts I found, so I'm going to assume it's that one, to be perfectly honest. Bunko Kelly 
whose real name was, oh, I didn't write that down. I believe it's Joseph Kelly, wrote his memoirs 13 years in the Oregon State Penitentiary while in prison. And he has some stories, let me tell you. One of the ones I thought was interesting was how he was saved by pirates after he himself had been kidnapped by what sounds like Shanghaiers and then sold. And then he ended up joining the pirates who had saved him right before abandoning them. And like, it almost sounded like he stranded them on an island with a bunch of the other slaves that these pirates had saved. The whole thing was ridiculous. There, There's a lot. I could probably do a whole podcast on just Kelly. But I'm not going to. Um, but the reason I am mentioning him here is because a lot of the famous stories of the Shanghai Tunnels end up being about Kelly. And I don't know what it is about this pirate story that just, like, struck me. I think when I was reading it, all I could hear was Captain Jack Sparrow's voice saying, and then they made me their king. His stories are so wild. So I just want to, I just want to, Focus on the ones related to the Portland tunnels. That that's all we're gonna do. But I I did want to add this little tidbit to show the kind of man we are dealing with here. So a lot of the first legends about the tunnels are either from Kelly himself or are about Kelly. And one of the most notorious ones comes from Kelly's own memoir, the one he wrote in prison. And that was the cannibalism story. Remember how I said the men were starved a lot of the time? Well, according to Kelly, one captain fixed that starving problem by feeding the Shanghai men a slave that happened to be on board. So yeah, horrific. Some other stories say that the Shanghai men were fed to the crew. Now, is there any real documentation from anyone but Kelly? And is Kelly a credible source? I'm going to go with a resounding no. Most historians believe the story is made up, but it's one that gets thrown around a lot. So I wanted to throw it out there. This leads us to a gentleman named Stuart Holbrook. Now, Stuart was another very interesting man. He is referred to as a rough journalist. This man is always pictured with a pipe in his hand, like corncob pipe kind of looking thing. Sometimes in flannel, 
sometimes in a very nice fedora. No in-between, though. He was supposed to be this very rugged individual who wrote about lumberjacks and going west and the outdoors. Like, it was a... Like, it was like this big deal at the time when he wrote this book about lumberjacks in Portland in the 1930s. But, like, ten years later, he was complaining that the current lumberjacks out there working were all sissies. So, a lot of toxic masculinity there. So, I think you can kind of get the vibe of our friend Stuart here. One of Holbrook's other favorite things to write about were the legends of Portland and the tunnels and a lot of the really popular myths about Bunko Kelly come from Holbrook's books. Always written in a light-hearted way. Like, he just made Kelly like this lovable scamp. But then if you actually read what he's doing, it's horrific. But, you know. One article I read about Holbrook stated, His stories, several of dubious authenticity or attribution, contributed to the emergence many years later of stories of a network of underground tunnels used for the Shanghai trade. So, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. According to Holbrook, one October, while looking for seamen for a ship leaving the next morning, Kelly had gone through his usual steps stops on Skid Row and could not find a single man to press into service on a ship. Which, to me, sounds like the most unbelievable part of this story. Standing across the street from a cigar store, about to give up, Kelly noticed a wooden six-foot-tall cedar statue Indian outside. He wrapped the statue in a tarp and hauled it onto the ship as a quote-unquote able-bodied man. Kelly earned $50 and the ship sailed away. Remember, the Shanghai guys were always almost completely drugged out of their minds when they were brought onto the ship. So it makes sense that nobody caught on right away that this new guy isn't moving or doing anything. After discovering the deception, the sailors threw the statue overboard. Two days later, according to Holbrook, the Finn Salmon Fisherman of Astoria... A hundred odd miles down the Columbia from Portland were astonished to drag in their nets and find a cedar Indian among the struggling fish. This is where he earned the nickname Bunko, which was a turn of the century slang for a con, con man. I also saw a story that the statue didn't come up until like 60 years later. 
but I don't know. Another famous Bunko Kelly story from Holbrook is that of the Flying Prince. Kelly was commissioned one night by a ship's captain to find him 17 men to sail his ship to Shanghai and back. Kelly went on his usual rounds of the local inns and taverns looking for drunkards to kidnap and send to sea. But he wasn't having any luck again. On his way to yet another bar, he passed the local funeral home. As he neared the opening for the cellar steps, which led to the sidewalk, he heard the sounds of men's voices. Cringe alert. And this is how it's written. Uh, He heard the sound of men's voices groaning either in pain or ecstasy. Kelly couldn't tell which. Mm. Intrigued, Bunko Kelly went down the steps to investigate. He found 22 men scattered around the cellar, slumped around a huge keg in the middle of the floor. They had obviously been drinking from it and were now suffering from a massive hangover of some sort. A sniff of the keg told Kelly the men who apparently thought they had broken into the cellar of the pub next door, had actually been drinking embalming fluid all evening. All of them were dying. In this gruesome situation, Kelly decided he'd found a solution to his problem. He dumped all the men into his crimping cart, took them down to the dock, threw them into the waiting canoes, and gave them to the ship's captain as sailors. He got paid, which was all that mattered to him, and the captain would have a crew, at least for one evening. To think was to act for Bunko Kelly. Quick as a wink, his employees had loaded the men onto the cart, taken them to the canoes, and Kelly was standing on the prow of a canoe, negotiating with the captain to take 22 men instead of the 17 he'd requested. All or none, Kelly told the captain. Reluctantly, the captain agreed. He loaded the semi-conscious, groaning men into his hold and set sail up the Willamette River to the Columbia. And from there to the sea. So, Bunko Kelly got paid after all. And the sea captain? Well, when he arrived in Astoria, he put in a request for 17 more sailors to take his ship to Shanghai. Must have given him quite a shock to go down into the hold of the ship and find 22 bodies where his able-bodied sailors should have been. Still, he managed to get rid of the body somehow without causing a fuss because no investigation was ever made into the disappearance of the fellows who snuck into the funeral parlor that unlucky night. Ugh. Here's the problem with the legend of Bunko Kelly. 
There's no record of either the cigar store Indian or the Flying Prince incidents ever happening. There's no mention of a ship named the Flying Prince in the records of Lloyd's of London, which ensured most of the ship's cargo that existed. So, who knows? It seems that Stuart Holbrook was about as credible as Bunko Kelly. The Shanghai Tunnels basically disappeared from history for a while. They were filled in or demolished in construction projects. They were, they were just lost to history. People began to question whether or not the tunnels ever existed. And if Shanghai was ever really a thing. Most of the tunnels were just the open basements of buildings, so those obviously still existed. But Holbrook's stories about the tunnels came into question. In the 1970s, articles appeared in the Portland, in Portland newspapers featuring Michael P. Jones... He was the manager of the Transit Bank, which was a social service agency in the Old Town area, which he referred to as the Hobo Bank. It was reported that he had discovered the long-hidden tunnels. While Jones noted that tunnels had been built for activities such as moving merchandise between building basements and as exits from gab gambling dens and houses of prostitution that might experience police raids he emphasized their role in the shanghai trade he said that he had been exploring old town basements since 1969 and had prepared a map of a network of tunnels stating that he was writing a book about Portland Shanghai trade, he began offering tours of the Shanghai tunnels. He created the Cascade Ge Geographic Society in 1979, which conducted tours of the tunnels as well as conducted tours of the Oregon Trail and other historical sites and trails, tours of old growth forests and other natural areas, worked directly with schools in a variety of ways, including Project Discovery that introduces inner-city students to natural areas and historic sites for field study opportunities. They also provided storytelling and living history programs. There, There's so much that this group does. It's a lot. They they do so much. Um, one last one I definitely want to emphasize. And I lost it. Um, they also work towards protecting final resting places like Native American burial grounds and pioneer cemeteries. According to Jack Osborne, Jones also taught this history at a local college. He also put together the Museum of the Shanghai Tunnels, partially seen on 
the TV show Portals to Hell. Michael P. Jones was also very adamant about the tunnels being haunted. He really is probably the one that made the hauntings famous. This is the guy you have seen on every ghost show talking about the Shanghai tunnels. I think his most recognizable feature is his massive curly hair that's just everywhere. He has like a mane. Sometimes he would wear a black top hat in some of the interviews. He was always so passionate about the tunnels and adamant that he had numerous paranormal experiences down there. Michael Jones died of a heart attack in 2020. He never finished his book on the tunnels. Hobo's Restaurant, the restaurant that gave Jones access to the tunnels, where he conducted the tours out of, and it looks like had part of the museum in at one point, closed during the COVID pandemic. Last I heard, it was being renovated but the new people in there wanted nothing to do with the tunnels. All of the work done to that portion of the tunnels, like Michael P. Jones and the Cascade Geographic Society probably had been working in this area for 25 years. They are no longer accessible to them. The Cascade Geographic Society is working on fundraising to open up a new section of the tunnels and get tours going again. So you can check out all their stuff on their website. Anyway, here is just some of the history of the Shanghai Tunnels. I wanted to give you the backdrop of all of this horror that people experienced to really have you understand the hauntings that we're going to talk about next. If hauntings can be caused by traumatic events, and if the stories about the tunnels are true, then the Shanghai tunnels are a perfect place for hauntings to occur. And if the stories are true, there are several. Right after this, I'll be back to tell you all about them. Considering the history of the Shanghai Tunnels, it only makes sense that people believe the tunnels to be haunted. It seems like every type of haunting has been reported down there. A lot of the stories, following stories, sorry, come from Haunted Portland, Oregon by Jeff Dreyer. People have reported hearing soft moaning, sobbing, screams, gaps, gasps for air, and pleas for help. There's been disembodied footsteps, the squeaking hinges of cell doors, heavy breathing, grunting, and the crack of a whip heard frequently. Knocking is another commonly heard noise in the tunnels. 
Some people believe that it's ghost attempting to get your attention. Or it could just be residual energy from people from the past making their ways through the tunnels. There is a spirit referred to as the Whistler that is heard quite a bit. And again, I said heard. This spirit has never been seen. Just heard. Hence the name, Whistler. It sounds like a female whistling some old-time tune. Michael P. Jones says that he first heard the whistling back in the early 90s. He searched for about half an hour for someone in the tunnels and then realized he just couldn't see them. He had heard it numerous times since, and there were has been multiple reports of people hearing whistling. Here's another very interesting story. A large group of ghosts thought to be the crew of the ill-fated ship Jennifer Joe shows up occasionally in various parts of the tunnels. They sulk about searching for the crimps who pressed them into service. Legend says that a large number of men, all beaten, starved, and drugged, were hauled unconscious aboard the Jennifer Joe, a ship desperate for a crew. Not willing to wait for the Shanghai men to awaken, the captain set sail from Bunko's dock in the middle of the night, only to sink somewhere in the Columbia River. All hands went down with the ship, including the Shanghai crew who were still locked below decks. Angry and seething with pain, these men manifest in the tunnels by laying a wet hand on the shoulder of tourists. Not All the ghosts in these tunnels are angry or in pain. The ghost of a young boy, said to be about nine years old, has been spotted by many witnesses as he moves from a bunk bed cell to a hallway and then vanishes. Some ghost hunters report that he carries a bucket or chamber pot. It is likely that this boy was an orphan who found a job in the tunnels emptying the large volume of waste produced by all the men and women held captive there. This story breaks my heart. The story of the Jennifer Joe makes me think of the ghost pirates walking along the bottom of the ocean in Pirates of the Caribbean. But just thinking of this poor little boy who had A shit life only to continue it in the afterlife. I'm choosing to believe it's a residual haunt. The most frequently sighted ghosts in these tunnels are those of the crimps who may be condemned to remain in the dark, damp spaces where they ruined the lives of thousands of men and women. Psychics and others with sufficient sensitivity 
described the crimps as large shadowy figures, very dark with red eyes. You know that thing where it's like darker than dark, like the blackest black kind of thing? That. When they appear, even the least sensitive person gets a very uneasy feeling. As the atmosphere becomes dense and cold, often while listening intently to docents, tourists sense a large presence behind them as a crimp hovers over their shoulder. Remember this little tidbit for my story later. <clears throat> Ghost Adventures, of course visited the Shanghai Tunnels, and they interviewed a guy from a local paranormal group. He said he was down in the tunnel doing some excavating where the boots taken from the Shanghai men were commonly found. And as he was working, an unseen force picked up a brick behind him and threw it at the back of his head. It whizzed past him missing his head by mere inches and smashing into the wall. A woman on most terrifying places in America had the story that she and some people were walking down, working down in the tunnels, and they needed a door open down there because these open basements, they have weird doors that lead to the next building's basement. A bartender from upstairs came down and opened the door. They saw a hand reach out from the door. It was cloudy and wispy looking. And like, she like described the fingers and everything and it reached out. Everybody freaked out and the bartender quit the next day. Another common thing heard down in the Shanghai tunnels are the spirit chimes. Now, this is not necessarily a ghosty thing. Well, I guess it is technically. So, the wind chimes were hung around the tunnels by the tour groups. And it is believed when spirit energy manifests near them, they will ring. Whether it's a spirit messing with them or just passing by. There is no airflow, or there's not supposed to be, in the tunnels. Since I have now been down in the tunnels, I do not want to imagine being down there and then just hearing chimes from somewhere in the dark. I say that as a light starts flickering somewhere in my house. That, that's not cool. According to Michael P. Jones on an episode of Portals to Hell, when they are excavating the tunnels and trying to renovate them, the spirit activity would ramp up a lot. Which, you know, that makes sense. This caused a lot of work crews to only last about an hour before they couldn't handle it anymore and they would have to leave. 
Jones himself has been scratched, beaten, and even seen apparitions. He's also claimed to have found evidence of devil worship in the form of pentagrams and candles. Another fun historical tidbit. Apparently, boxing was illegal in Portland at the height of the Shanghai Tunnels. So, fighting rings could also have been found throughout the tunnels. Another frequently seen apparition is Mysterious Billy Smith. He was a famous boxer from the area and was known to bite people's ears off. Uh, Like, what? I know that's happened in more modern times too, but apparently this was like this guy's signature. Today, people claim to feel something nibbling on their ears in certain parts of the tunnels. And this has been attributed to Billy. According to one of the tour guides, she had been excavating in an area, digging into the dirt with a shovel, and then took a lunch break or something. When she came back, she found the shovel she had been digging with, standing straight up and down, levitating about three inches off the ground. She stood and watched it for what seemed like minutes until it just dropped to the ground. I don't know. The, mm. Seeing something levitate, I think, would be both absolutely amazing and freaking terrifying. Just as long as I caught it also on camera. That would make me happy. The same tour guide says that there is a furnace room where they used to burn the bodies of the men that died down there. Now, this is the only time I've heard of this furnace and burning the bodies as a way to get rid of them. And apparently this area is very haunted now because of it. But yeah, this is the only time I've heard that. Along with that there is possibly a cemetery down there in the same kind of area that elders of the Chinese community confirmed was a Chinese cemetery that was there. It had nothing to do with the tunnels. It just happened to be where these Chinese immigrants had been buried. They're not a hundred percent though. I don't think they've excavated it. Which is probably a good thing. But I can't imagine if it is a cemetery that it's not completely disturbed. Another haunted place is Harvey's Comedy Club. The owners claim that employees have seen shadows and apparition. There have been lots of 
mumbling voices heard. One of the owners had the chair pulled out from under him one time while he was sitting at a table in the club. He dropped hard onto the floor. The same owner was later pushed and he was pushed so hard I'm not 100% sure what happened, but he said he needed to call the EMTs to come save him. Footsteps are also frequently heard walking down the hall. Sadly, it looks like Harvey's Comedy Club closed in 2017. I'm not sure what is in there now. And the reason I bring this one up, so it's not just totally random, it is connected to the tunnels as well. I realize it was just kind of random there for a sec. Now, one of the most mysterious sightings in the tunnels is that of a wolf. I remember first seeing this on a ghost show many years ago. And I believe it was... Michael P. Jones telling the story, but I could be wrong about that part. I unfortunately could not find this clip. I I thought it was like scariest places or most terrifying places on earth kind of thing or America, whatever the heck is that show's called. Um, but I was wrong. I looked through haunted history. I, I went through so much that I could get my hands on. That's why there's so many shows in this referenced. But I could not find this clip anywhere. So I will recount it the best I can. Basically, there's a wolf scene in the tunnels. That's my heater turning on and it just scared me. Sometimes it's described as unnaturally large. Think along the lines of a dire wolf. Sometimes it's seen just as a normal wolf. And if you didn't know any better, you would think there was this wild animal down in the tunnels with you. Other times it's more spectral looking, like white see-through, passing through walls sort of thing. Definitely spiritual. No one really knows why it's there. Some believe that it's a protective spirit for the indigenous souls that are trapped in the tunnels or a spirit attached to the land. I did find a legend about a Native American man who worked on a longboat helping to turn the ships in the harbor. He was tall and strong. A crimp wanted to capture him because he felt he could make a lot of money off of him. A group of men surrounded this man in the streets, ready to take him in. Suddenly, he shape-shifted into a wolf, got down on all fours, like he was about ready to pounce. The man ran in terror. And the wolf disappeared. 
It is said that to this day, the cry of a wolf can be heard along the riverfront. Homeless people claim to hear a howl on the night air. People who have heard it are sure that it is not a dog or a coyote. This has led to stories of werewolves also being associated with the tunnels. But this is really the only story I can find about werewolves. If you have more, please, for God's sakes, email me. Can you imagine being down in the tunnels and hearing a wolf howl? I'm sorry, but to hell with the wind chimes? I'm out. As awesome as all these stories have been, there's one that is arguably the most famous ghost story of the Shanghai Tunnels in Portland, and that is of Nina. In 1881, the Merchant Hotel was conceived as a state-of-the-art hotel that was so advanced in its architecture, plumbing, gas lighting, and other conveniences that construction spanned four years. Built by lumber barons Aldolf Lewis and Theodore Nikolai, the place opened in 1885 and immediately attracted clientele from the city's high society who sought the best drinks and food and most luxurious rooms for <clears throat> private liaisons. Right under the Merchant Hotel floorboards ran the Shanghai Tunnels. I bet you can see where this is going. Local legend says that one of the women that worked in the Merchant Hotel was a woman named Nina. Now, before I continue, there is no documentation for Nina ever existing, or well, sadly dying. This is a story that has been retold over and over again so many times. Some of the stories change depending on who is telling the story. Some people say that Nina was a white woman, some say she was indigenous. I have even heard that she was a Chinese immigrant. One thing everyone agrees on is that Nina was kidnapped and forced into sex work. Most of the stories believe she was not one of the higher up girls and probably worked down in the cribs, possibly actually in the tunnels. Some stories say that she had a son that hung around the hotel. Maybe our little man from earlier. Who knows? And then there's other stories that say she was pregnant. Either way, the basics of the story go like this. Nina was contacted by local missionaries or police officers, depending on the story, who promised to help her escape the crimps and guards and get her safe passage out of the city, but for a cost. 
she would need to reveal the identities of the men who operated the brothels and gam gambling houses. I don't know why I can't say gambling tonight. This must have been a terrifying place to have been put in. Of course, she wanted out, but to out her captors would have been just as dangerous. She decided it was worth the risk and gave over names. When she gave over names, the guys that were supposed to be helping her decided it wasn't good enough. They needed more proof. A bit of a red flag. Until they had the proof, she needed to stay put and keep an eye on things, almost like a, a double agent. And she could alert them whenever she had evidence. One of the stories I heard said that she would wait until someone of importance came into the hotel. Someone that would have been a big bust for the police. And she would send one of the children that hung around the hotel to the missionaries immediately to let them know to come and bust them. Usually they were always, quote unquote, too late to catch them. One time, the police arrived in time, but nothing happened. No one got arrested. Mm. Another red flag. Remember, like I said, a lot of the police and officials were getting paid off. One day, Nina was summoned to the third floor of the hotel under the pretext that she was to entertain a special guest. Upon arriving at the me meeting, Nina was attacked and thrown down the elevator shaft to her death. The plan had been discovered by someone associated with her captors, possibly a police officer on the take. The killer was never captured or identified. Old Town Pizza sits now in the original Merchant Hotel lobby. In fact, the window where you place your pizza order was the original hotel's reception desk and is flanked by the lobby's original decorative cast iron beam posts. There's even a place where they think might have been a deadfall, like the trap door to drop men through to the crimps. The hydraulic elevator has been removed, leaving the shaft where Nina died as an air vent. Today, a popular booth in Old Town Pizza occupies the spot. A spot where Nina's spirit has been encountered many times. Her presence has been made known by the faint fragrance of her signature perfume, usually a lilac or a light floral scent, a swishing sound of her long skirt, or a sweet voice whispering a word or two. When she has sufficient energy and potential witnesses have the necessary level of sensitivity, 
Nina appears in a black dress with her long, dark hair pulled back in a tight bun. She apparently likes what she sees in the renovated building because she walks through Old Town Pizza without an expression of distress and sometimes smiles at patrons. Ghost hunters have captured several light anomalies in digital images and a few fascinating EVPs that may be Nina's manifestations. Staff members of the restaurant report that they have left out a bowl containing Scrabble tiles overnight only to find that a ghostly hand has arranged particular letters in curious but unintelligible messages. According to Jeff Dreyer, author of Haunted Portland, Oregon, who I've cited multiple times, has this story of running into Nina and the back booth. I found her there on one occasion. After I sat alone for nearly an hour, the space around me was suddenly filled with the fragrance of a perfume and the sound of a swishing skirt. Instantly, the small space felt crowded. As a faint voice said in a litting, melodic tone, I'm here. During other visits to Old Town Pizza, my companion and I have heard the tapping sound of a woman's boot on the floor at a time when no one close by was moving about. Again, the fragrance of a pungent perfume filled the space around us before suddenly vanishing. One of the other mysteries around Nina is a little more concrete. That's funny. Sorry. Nina is often looked for in the back booth, like I said. Around this private little sitting area, people have carved their names into the bricks over the decade. A permanent reminder that they were there. And there's a lot. Some are carved, some are sharpie, and some are crayon. Near the front of the entrance to this little seating area, in brick is the name, clearly carved, Nina. Many people believe that she watched other people carving their names and her ghostly hand carved hers as a reminder that she was still there. I have been obsessed with the Shanghai Tunnels ever since I first saw them on TV on some paranormal show back in the late 1990s or the early aughts or something. Something like that. I was devastated last year when my f- with my first trip to Portland that I was unable to visit the tunnels. Michael P. Jones had passed away. The restaurant Hobos was already gone, so there was no way to get to them. 
No one else has started up any new tours yet. Honestly, Portland was a bit of a ghost town. Fast forward to this last fall. Old Town Pizza had started up doing ghost tours of the tunnels directly below them, as well as a beer tasting. Ghost hunting, then beer tasting. I feel like I need to add that. Anyways, I was so excited. I made the husband go with me. We got there early, got ourselves a beer, and just hung out. Old Town Pizza, aka the Merchant Hotel, is gorgeous. Like, there's so much old stained glass everywhere. It's so lovely. I'm like, it's so pretty. I would love to see it on a sunny day. When we were there, it was cloudy and rainy. It's Portland. That's to be expected. But I bet it is really spectacular on a sunny day. We started talking to the bartender a bit. And, of course, I had to ask. He had never experienced anything paranormal. I wasn't sure what he thought of it all. But he was still the most encouraging. Also, I just want to throw this out there. Quite possibly one of my, one of the best pumpkin beers I have ever had. Like, if it's not number one, it's easily top three. It's so good. When our tour was ready, we got to go into the tunnels. I'm definitely one of those people who is, like, first in line. I kind of have to be. I'm short, but that's beside the point. First of all, the tunnels, like I said, really aren't tunnels. There's parts that we walked through that were tunnel-like, but for the most part, open, connected basements that you can walk through pretty easily. I didn't know this. I thought they were tunnels. I tried not to do any research other than what I already knew before going into these places to begin with. And uh, I, 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 th- I was expecting tunnels. So prepare yourself for that. As far as the people at Old Town Pizza really could find it looks like their basement was used mostly for storage they didn't have any cells or cribs down there there's actually a part where they have built some so people could see what they were like but they make sure you know that they were not original in any way shape or form which i i appreciate still i was really surprised with all of the ghost stories associated with the tunnels and just how famous they are for like dark energy and everything. How neutral the energy felt. I expected heebie-jeebies the entire time and honestly there wasn't much of anything. Maybe a little bit of claustrophobia? I was really shocked 
The history and the stories they tell you on the tours are really interesting, so I completely recommend them. The guy that does the tour encouraged you to take photos while he told you the stories of the staff's experiences. One of the stories he told toward the end of the tour was when we were in back of the, we were right directly under uh, Old Town Pizza again, and it, it's kind of their storage area. The story goes that one of the staff members saw a black mass in the back. I believe it's where the walk-in fridges are. It creeped her out so much that she refused to go down there by herself again. He then went on to show us a little display case of all the things he had found down there. Old bottles, coins, that sort of thing. As we were looking in the case, the hair on the back of my neck immediately stood up. Considering I hadn't even felt like a drop, like EMF anything, like no buzz, nothing, I definitely took notice of this weird effect. I felt like somebody was staring at me. You know that feeling? When someone's just staring at the back of your head. That. It was strange. We had been in that room earlier. That's where the tour starts, basically. And I stood in almost the exact same spot I had earlier and didn't feel anything. I immediately felt scared, like something was going to happen, just that anticipation. My heart was racing. My anxiety started to pop off. And this is like the open area, so it wasn't like getting attacked by claustrophobia or anything all of a sudden. It was strange, and it came up really quick. It, it wasn't like this quick passing moment thing either. It felt prolonged. I waited until most of the people had followed our guide out of the room and turned around to where I thought someone was watching me. I took a quick picture and I thought I saw something move through my phone screen. I tried to get my phone to focus more on the spot so I could take another picture like to see if there was a mouse or something. And I accidentally zoomed in a little. I went to take a second picture and I hadn't realized this, but I had actually started literally trembling. Like I was shaking. So the photo is a little shaky. I didn't even know this was happening. And then I realized I was the last person in the room. So I quickly rushed up to meet everyone else. Then we went to go get our beer flights and everybody like sits down above in like the seating above the kitchens and everything. And our tour guide went to go get us our flights. And while we waited, he encouraged us to go through our pictures together to see if we caught anything. 
which I think is fun. Why not? I definitely needed a beer. The lady next to me got some really cool orbs. You guys know me. I I am not an orb person at all. I'm just like that. Okay, cool, whatever. These though were cool. They looked like weird lava lamp looking things. They looked like they were morphing. They it was really cool. I wish I would have asked her to share them with me. I didn't have anything in my pictures. The orbs I got all look like dust. And of course I'll post everything so you guys can see if there's anything I missed. I didn't see anything weird in mine. That is until the end. The last two photos I had when I was having the heebie-jeebies at the end. These photos were taken mere seconds apart, even though my story was, you know, long. Uh, mere seconds apart. The first one shows some of the shadows leading into the back area. You can see things on the shelves, something that possibly looks like the shape of a person. But honestly, standalone picture, it would be a hard sell. Like, it, it's not much, I'll be honest. The second one though, <laughs> it definitely looks like the shape of a person, but it's blacker and darker suddenly. You could no longer see things through it, like the shelves behind it. You couldn't see those anymore. It was just black. Like there's this weird progression between the first picture and the second picture. It showed, I showed the people around me and I was encouraged to show our guide, but he had disappeared to go get ready for his next tour. Honestly, I didn't really want to bug him because he was busy, but like a lot of the people in our group were like, no, you need to show him this. So I was like, yeah, it's nice encouragement. Why not? I assumed he had seen lots of pictures like this, but oh well. We got some pizza and then decided to go sit at the bar again to see if we could possibly catch our tour guide to see if he could explain the picture. The bartender asked us how our tour went, so I showed him my pictures. He just started swiping back and forth between the two pictures. Just constantly back, forth, back, forth. Because I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, whoa, back, forth, back. It was so funny. He asked if he could borrow my phone real quick. And I said, sure, I guess. He went to show the other bartender who showed one of the pizza guys and then showed a hostess. Everybody was suddenly creeped out and they all agreed that they hated going down there. One of them was able to show the tour guide real quick before he left on his next tour and his jaw dropped. He said he didn't need to see that before going back down. Don't worry, I'll post those too. And you can tell me what you think. 
My best guess, looking at some of the other reported experiences down there, I bet it was one of the crimps that was still hanging around. I, this, this was really cool. I, I thought it was awesome. I honestly cannot wait to go back. Again, though, I must emphasize, the beer is amazing. <laughs> Thank you to everyone out there listening today. My Haunted Life podcast is written, researched, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Angela Hartshorn. If you are interested in more pictures, info, and my sources for this week's episode, make sure to check out my website, www.myhauntedlifepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Like I said, this whole new season is all about the Pacific Northwest. Next week, I have another Portland story for you. If you have any information about today's episode you want to tell me or a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can write me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, which are all at My Haunted Life Podcast. I try to keep it easy. While you are there, please like and follow and comment. It, it honestly makes my day. We also have a Facebook group. A lot of times we share ghost memes. It's a lot of fun. And make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. Word of mouth goes a long way. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on My Haunted Life Podcast. And until then, say spooky. Spooky.